This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. There's one big idea at the heart of Andrew Wilson's remarkable book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West, published by Crossway. He argues that more than any other year in the last millennium, the last 1,000 years, 1776 made us who we are today in the West. I suppose many listeners, especially in the United States, are thinking, of course, the Declaration of Independence. Ron Swanson said it best. History began on July 4th, 1776. But wait, didn't Andrew just say the post-Christian West? What does he mean about that? Well, Andrew demonstrates a lot of courage writing about 1776 as the teaching pastor of King's Church London. But one of the most important points of of his book is that the American Revolution was just one of many world-changing events and ideas crossing and recrossing the Atlantic in and around 1776. In fact, he argues the battles were less important than the words. Human rights, free trade, liberal democracy, religious pluralism, the preference for authenticity over authority, choice over duty, self-expression over self-denial. Andrew traces it all back to 1776. Now, Ron Swanson might not be right that history began on July 4, 1776, but Andrew does argue that 1776 separates us from the past. He writes this, The vast majority of people in human history have not shared our views of work, family, government, religion, sex, identity, or morality, no matter how universal or self-evident we may think they are. In Andrew's telling, the West is full of Protestant pagans, and Christians are victims of our own success. So I can't wait to ask him about his favorite stories and his fervent hopes. Andrew, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thank you so much. That's a fantastic introduction. Uh, it's a great joy to talk. Maybe I think I'll you were probably invent. one of the first people who ever got excited about this project, so I feel like I owe you a huge oh. debt of gratitude that it got published at all, so thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, again, I've been looking forward to this this for a long time and diving deep on this. I've read the book twice and, uh, and uh, thought about it uh, nonstop in many ways since, uh, <laughs> since even my second reading of it. Uh, appropriately, you, you will, of course, appreciate that it came while I was staying in Cambridge. Only seemed, <laughs> only seemed fitting. Um, but Andrew, how do you even begin to conceive of a book with this kind of scope? I mean, when did you start to connect the dots about 1776? So I was on holiday in France about six years ago when I was reading a book 
um, by Ian Morris called Why the West Rules for Now. It was really a sort of book about why the West has been ahead of the East for a long time and why that's now changing. And it was a really interesting thing. And in the course of it, he was talking about the fact that the steam engine was in what steam engine and the wealth of nations happened within the same weekend in 1776. And I thought, hang on, that's a, probably the key invention in industrial history and the most important economics book ever written happened in the same year as the Declaration of Independence. That's really, I've never been told that, I didn't know that. And then as these things go, you start digging and you think, oh my goodness, this is a really important year in the history of romanticism and in navigation and geo, um, sort of interconnecting of different parts of the world and the Enlightenment. And I knew enough about the period because I studied a bit of it uh, when I was a, an undergrad in history to sort of see the way that the build up to the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, so on. And I thought, wow, this is a really significant year. That's an interesting story. I wonder if I'll ever talk about it. But that on its own doesn't become a, a book, at least it would be quite a weird one. I think what then... That what joined dots for me was then when I was also at the same kind of time getting into Jonathan Haidt's work and his idea of the West being weird or Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. And I know you've talked to Haidt before and I found him very helpful and interesting. And I, I think that somehow, somewhere a collision between these two concepts came together. And I thought, actually, the things that made the transformations which made us Western or rich or romantic or industrialized those things there's an example of a change that happened in this year that made all of those things happen and i think if i brought the two of them together i could tell a really interesting story about why we are like we are and what the church can do about it so give me based on that foundation give me your biggest surprise when you're researching where you're thinking oh wow i didn't realize that was also 1776 right so i think the biggest surprise Maybe, maybe this is not quite wise. The biggest surprise I got was the thing that I think we, you and I have talked about before, which is the fact that the edit to the Declaration of Independence, which I didn't know. And I, I was the, the idea that Ben Franklin said, no, 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 you shouldn't say this is these truths are sacred and undeniable. You should say they're self-evident. And we might come back to that. But that to me was the big like, it's like a mic drop. You know, wow, that's such a significant development because that's not just a political issue now. That's a very important I think, parable of the post-Christian West. Um, I think of the I think the events that I hadn't placed in that year, I think there was a couple of really trivial ones that just blew me away. Like I found, <laughs> I put it in a footnote, but it isn't important enough to tell a story at any length. But I found that in the same year, um, the Illuminati and the, I think it's the Phi Beta Kappa, to so the first secret society in America and the major secret society in Europe were also both founded in the same year, unrelated to each other, in 1776. And I just thought, why is things, even at that random a level, also happening in this year? What does this, what's going on in the West that's causing those two really, apparently quite unrelated things to happen? Um, there's a great many others, but I, I think... Once you start with the the big industrial, economic, and religious and political developments, like an awful lot of other things almost flow out of that. But that was those. It was almost like this. Yeah, very odd details that I found really fascinating were also taking place in the same year. They're not very important, but that's partly why I found them so fascinating. You already alluded to this, Andrew, that maybe I'm not the best interviewer on this book because I share so much <laughs> of your fascination with history. I mean, I majored in European history, no less. Um, I I'm wondering, why should other Christians, maybe not the folks that 
spend a lot of time reading the kinds of things that you and I do for fun. Why should they care about your book? Is it, I mean, it's just because it tells engaging stories of the past, which it, it definitely does, but why should others care? Well, I think that, so early feedback I've had from people who wouldn't normally read big history books, which has been encouraging and is what I hoped, is that people have said, this just helps, it helps me under, helps me connect and explain things that are going on in our current world. And it helps me see them in a way that makes un, sense of things that appear not to be connected to each other, that gives me a story that goes, oh, okay, that's why that and that of both part of the same wider phenomenon and it's it, back to the classic thing of it means i'm reading the, the newspaper or i'm online and i'm scrolling seeing something that's just happened and it's enabling me to join dots and make connections and connect them to the influence and role of christianity in the world and the way the church can respond to it so towards the end of the book i try and equip people this is how we can respond but even in telling the story itself i think you can give christians some um some agency or some I mean goodness power sounds a bit a bit dramatic but you can to some degree because you say look this is a name for that thing you've experienced and this is not just a weird development that sprung out of nowhere and I was particularly writing that in light in light of what I think of as a one of the most you know one of the another very intense period of cultural change between about 2014 and 2017 uh, in the west where a huge amount of dominoes seem to fall culturally at once and a lot of Christians probably even more in your country than mine, I expect, just kind of thrown and like, what on earth? These changes are all coming out of nowhere. And I think by putting them in the context of a bigger story, you can give people a sense of, I can name it, I can see the journey, I can understand why that does kind of follow from where we were. It's not as shocking, it's not as disorienting, and hopefully give people a sense of a, a, a coherent narrative to understand why it is and also how me might we might respond to it without panicking or freaking out or whatever it is. I thought this quote from your book was, was helpful on this point. You said, the rate of change in the last two centuries makes the past feel much further away than it actually is, which inclines us to fawn over the future and either patronize the past or ignore it altogether. I think that's just an important concept about the significance of history and the way that we're especially ill-equipped in this place and time to be able to understand it, but which I think your book does a great job of, of helping us to see its significance. Um, of all the different wide-ranging aspects of the book, you know, which of these threads, which of them is the f most fun, your favorite to be able to pull on? That's really, that's a good question. And I haven't been asked that before. I think, well, I'll answer that two ways. I think the one that I most enjoyed learning about was is the sort of the economic and material changes in the world because that's probably the one where I had the least idea at the start of the at the start of the story where it was going to go. I thought I just I don't think I'd ever seen before that if you draw a graph of the economic growth of the human race, GDP per person or whatever it is, that it basically it looks like a hockey stick. It just goes flat for 10,000 years and then shoots up and the inflection point is somewhere around the mid-1770s. of the mid And that was just such an extraordinary thing to see and such an important development. That was probably the most fun to understand or to see for the first time. But I think the one I probably most enjoyed writing about in many ways was the one on romanticism because, again, I just find these characters 
some of them that are at work and I talk a bit about the you know the, the sort of German playwrights gathering around Goethe and I talk about Giacomo Casanova who'll be a known name that's known to a lot of people but most people don't know very much about him um, and then Jean-Jacques Rousseau who is just an extraordinarily odd brilliant genius but it's very strange man and I just found the characters it's almost that's the probably the chapter where the storytelling is the easiest and the most fun because they're just such extraordinary people and at one point I'm reading away and then I'm discovering hang on a second the plot of the Shawshank Redemption is based on the escape from jail of this 18th century philanderer who breaks out of jail by hiding a spike inside a bible hides behind a painting goes out through a hole in the wall you're like how did this happen and i've never known it before so there was so much fun in that chapter just to discover this stuff and i so i hope as you say that it's some of the book is just is just trying to tell a, a really interesting story um but obviously with a, a apologetic undertones and a hope of application which i hope emerges as well just trying to imagine rousseau and franklin hanging out <laughs> yeah yeah rousseau's i just imagine rousseau and anybody hanging out ben franklin i think is one of the most ordinary 21st century but he, he looks like if he parachuted into your town now he'd probably be okay he, he just doesn't seem like he belongs to another era in this quite the way that many characters do and rousseau is the opposite he's just a total weirdo um but a but a brilliant man who's shaped us all in all kinds of ways now the my next question is a it's pretty big one but it's one of my hobby horses so and it's my show so i get to talk about it explain why you don't buy into the enlightenment narrative the triumph of freedom and reason over the dogmas of the Dark Ages. Um, I really appreciate your comment that you don't hear as much about this story when you're touring Cambridge University or uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Yeah, and uh, and by the way, great shout on Notre Dame. That's uh, that's <laughs> I was actually waiting for the end of that sentence, wondering <laughs> if he was going to Notre Dame it on a podcast. <laughs> European history major talk- protected him. We're talking about Paris, <laughs> not about football. So yeah. that's why. No, I I. I do, and that's a that is a good example. So I have that because I live very near a um, I in fact I just I drive past it regularly a, a, a thousand year old castle near near my house, um, which is sort of where the Normans landed. And when people see it, they're like, ah, it's like the Dark Ages. It's all sort of everyone's just eating turnips and dying of plague. And you, but then you consider what medieval society in Europe developed, invented, understood. You look at, particularly in that, I mean, I think you, you've got to concede some some of the force of it. You've got to say that after the Roman Empire collapsed, that it, the, the political instability and the military chaos that was unleashed on Europe between the eight years, say, 500 and around 900, were obviously destructive for economic growth and literacy and many other things but i think as soon as you see the the term certainly around the turn of the millennium from about what year 1000 onwards you see enormous creativity industry growth the rise of trade the rise of guilds and the building of cathedrals and the establishing of uh, civil society and the burger towns uh, and universities and clocks and you just think and astronomy and you think actually that even just the university is a medieval European invention. And you've just realized this is this is silliness. What's happened is people have told a story with ourselves at the end of it in such a way as to amplify the difference between how brilliant we are and how dim they were. And in doing so have completely distorted the evidence. And I think it, it is in a way, it's a propaganda tool. 
And it was originally, there's a fun thing again to get, dig into this, of course, is it's a Protestant propaganda yeah, tool. That was gonna be my starts, next, it was going to be my yeah. next question right there. Is, I mean, are Protestants to blame for this? Yeah, basically, at least originally. So the, the first guy to use the language of the Middle Ages or the Middle Age was some was writing in the same year as the gunpowder plot which is a very big part of british like 1605 catholics tried to blow up the government and we still memorialize the fact that it didn't blow up by fireworks and bonfires and all that jazz in britain and the but it that's that's where the term middle age comes from it's a protestant narrative saying well there was this obviously the early church and then there's this dark middle age and then there's protestantism and all that happens with the transition over the next 150 years, Europeans begin to say, well, that's not quite the, the story, but it's very similar. There's the world of antiquity of brilliant Greek Roman thinkers and beautiful poetry and lovely buildings and togas and grapes. And then they, then it all goes quiet and weird and dark and everyone eats turnips and dies of plague and burns witches. And then European enlighteners emerge in around Isaac Newton's often, you know, get credited with a lot of that. And then in the sort of 17th and 18th century, Europeans switch the lights on and everyone gets knowledge. And so it's really a Protestant story with some of the details changed and the heroes now become Edward Gibbon or Voltaire rather than Luther and Calvin. But the story is basically the same shape. So, yeah, I think Protestants are in large part to blame. And, and of course, there are some details of that story that you can rescue and say, well, it's a degree of truth in it, as I touched on, but it's a very, very distorted flattening of what really happened in Europe, let alone elsewhere, which, of course, is one of the worst things about that story, is it just totally censors uh, not even Europe as a whole, just a, a particular part of Northwestern Europe and says, this is where it's at, and we're the guys responsible for enlightening the world, to which, obviously, many people who are enslaved or deported or colonized would say, seriously? Um, so it, it's, a, it's, it's not a good version of history. Yeah, I wonder if American listeners might not be as familiar with how that narrative has been undermined, even in recent years. I was with our friend James Eglinton up in Edinburgh this summer, and we were walking around, and sure enough, there's the statue of David Hume, but look at all the problems because of David's Hume, David Hume's views on race. Um, all of a sudden, he's getting canceled because he doesn't fit anymore. We've become enlightened on that topic. So let's talk about that, how you see racism affecting that reception of the Enlightenment story today. And I just need to read this for the stage. As you're gathering your thoughts, I just need to you know, say this. This is a great line about the philosophers. Um, the Western world has been illuminated by their powerful blend of sense and sensibility and their laudable commitment to persuasion. But we have also been darkened by their pride and prejudice. You must have had fun writing that one. I really did, and I'm so glad you've noticed it because I'm I'm honestly worried that lots of people are just be going, "What's he on about here?" So it's just so flowery, and then it. But um, obviously, Hat it's tip, a Jane of, Austen right there. Austin, Austin fans, yeah. Um, and and of course, I do think that you know, I I do think that she's at least in sense and sensibility. There is something deliberate there. I'm not an Austin scholar, but I think the idea that those are the that that is very much of the period pride and prejudice obviously she's not talking about enlightenment views of race um but i am yeah i i think i think it is obviously we we hugely overuse the word problematic as a modern society but it is really really bad when you read particularly when you consider this is not these are not minority the racial uh stereotypes and outright bile really that comes forth from some of these key writers are not from coming from minor figures i think in a way if you dig hard enough you can badmouth almost any movement because you can everyone 
has every movement's going to have someone somewhere who says something bad but this isn't that this is david hume emmanuel Kant, and voltaire who the giants of the you know the french scottish and um german enlightenments and they just said terrible appalling things i don't want to actually don't i can't quote them from memory but i wouldn't want to if i could i mean some of the things that are being said you just now that's not to say every enlightener believed all of those things and it's not to say i think you could have a very reasonable discussion about what is the right way to respond to statues of people who discovered very important things and said some great stuff and then said some absolutely terrible stuff like what is the i think you could have that debate and obviously many of us did in in the 2020 but that aside this what is being said and affirmed based on a very eurocentric narrative of of history mixed sometimes interestingly with a real hatred of biblical anthropology that's, that's, that's sometimes what's motivating it is we certainly in voltaire that the the, the anti-semitism a lot of the racism is actually partly coming from a place where they're trying to distance themselves as much as possible from the idea that god created all humanity in adam and eve and his descent so this idea of common descent is a huge problem and then there's a Eurocentric narrative, and there's just good old-fashioned bigotry in there as well. And the combination of those things produces these just vile racial, not just epithets and the sort of sneering laziness that you often get in, in, in a sort of garden-variety racism. But actually, sometimes people quite explicitly, Hume does, he just explicitly goes, okay, I have heard rumours of this you know, black guy who's meant to be quite clever, but actually he's just parroted all of that from somewhere. He's just a parrot. He's heard it all somewhere else. I think, you know enough educated black men in your, and they are mostly men, in your day to surely understand that what you're saying is not a fair representation. So that is one of the big, yeah, dark spots on the record of the Enlighteners. And it's not something from which Christians are immune either, of course, as we know. But it's, it's, I just think it's important to say, not to trash the entire Enlightenment, but to say this is not quite the darkness to light story you you've been told. Let's jump to your chapter on skeptics. You observe this, a little bit of a longer quote here. Contingent religious beliefs now sound like self-evident secular truths. The year of our Lord has been universalized. The rights of humanity have been standardized. The redistribution of wealth has been normalized. And all you need is love. Christianity in that sense became a victim of its own success. It baked its moral norms so deeply into Western culture that people eventually forgot where they came from, end quote. So, Andrew, do you think we're close to losing not just the memory, but also the norms themselves? Well, this is one of the interesting questions, and the answer is I don't, I don't know. I feel like we're probably a lot further away from it than some of the more apocalyptic accounts would suggest we are. And I think that's because moral norms of the kind that we're talking about, the human dignity, are baked very deeply into the the what I would call the post-Christian West or the, you know post-Christendom, and I think in a strange way that has been ratified and made harder to eradicate by the attempts in the 20th century to get rid of them, to re redefine the moral norms. Um, you think particularly of the Nazis, and I don't want to be the guy who drops in the Nazis for the sake of it, but obviously that was a a particularly virulent attempt to and to anti-christianize values really to say you know we're not going to treat people as if they're all created equal and we're going to explicitly oppose that version of morality and try and valorize strength and then and that of course was has got its connections to nietzschean 
thinking and even social Darwinism, although I don't blame either Darwin or Nietzsche for all the things the Nazis did, of course. Um, and I think that that attempt was so, when obviously was so vile in its outcomes that I think it's almost reinforced people's desire to never let that happen again, even if they don't have really a metaphysical ground mm. for not doing it. And so I think what's happened is the tastes of Western people have made it feel revol revolting to, to say not all human beings are created equal, even though people say, I don't even really believe in creation, let alone in created equality. Right. So you end up in a strange position where people are saying, I definitely don't want to go there with the moral conclusion of rejecting Christianity on the human dignity. But at the same time, I definitely don't want to go with the Christians on why we believe it. So I kind of going to preserve the fruit and hope no one will notice that I no longer hold to the roots and trust that that will stay for as long as it for as long as it can. So I but I think the so I think the overall it doesn't make logical sense as such to me, but I think it will probably last a good while longer in part because of primarily the Nazi attempt and also in other areas, communism and others to eradicate it. I think people will still for a very long time have a memory of what happens when you don't hold to that kind of view of human beings. Now, later in the book, you describe this cognitive dissonance. You've alluded to it just there, the moral fruit without the spiritual root, and say that the, quote, post-truth world is an unaffordable luxury, end quote, to the oppressed and disfranchised. You clearly alluded to it there with the communists and the Nazis and the people who suffered their tyrannies. What else do you have in mind here? I think I think there's all sorts of things about the way people conceive of, and so and, and by the way, some of them are more at, more at risk in our generation than others. I think, but I think in if you I go back to your Declaration of Independence, okay, so the, just take a, a line. It's obviously very very formative expression of Christian anthropology for modern politics and economics as well as morality and, and the duties you owe your fellow humans and to say you know it's self-evident to us or whatever sacred and undeniable to us that all people are created equally and in, or, and endowed with certain inalienable rights now those that statement contains a huge amount of christian anthropology it's obviously got a creator it's got people who are made effectively equal to one another doesn't quite say in the image of god but that's the gist of it and that undergirds the UN Declaration on Human Rights and everything we believe about what human humans owe one another, obligations and duties to our fellow humans. And so I think where I think there have been some, as I say, experiments to say we are not going to go there and we're going to go harder the other direction as we've talked about. But I think there are other things that do just get chipped away when you take away those foundations. Um, I think we could talk about more you know, contemporary issues like abortion would be an example of an issue where it's a sort of you, you there's a foot in the door and even what some people have been able to say and still remain in the public square with some degree of respectability think of somebody like peter singer on infanticide where you think well the fact that that's able to be said you certainly at the other end of life you have you know way, the way that various nations that you think of the dutch or the canadians uh on the way and people talk about euthanasia assisted dying whatever people want to call it and you realize actually the combination of euphemism a lack of clarity in the public square about what exactly is going on and an erosion of christian anthropology can lead to some pretty unpleasant causes even now so i'm not saying we go from there straight to nazism or anything. i'm not going that doing that at all i think but what happens is that, that you do destabilize christian anthropology and over time, people will no longer take it for granted that the fact that someone is human, therefore they're made in the image of God, means 
You can't kill them no matter who they are. You might find rationales that might say, well, if, if people are very small or very old or whatever. Now, that's one example. Yeah. I think there's plenty of others as well. But to me, that feels like quite a pressing one in our day and one that most people listening to this are probably aware of and to some degree troubled by. But I think it's part of that larger story of what's happened to those norms in the West. Yeah, what do you make of it, Andrew, that the difference between some of the most utilitarian approaches to death of the weak so you go back to the Nazi era, and the thought is they're parasites on society. We don't have the resources to take care of them. Today it's more like, well, why would you want to stay alive if you don't feel fulfilled and happy? Because that's the point of life. Is there a common thread between those two, or are they entirely different just with the same result that the weak are the ones who suffer and ultimately die? Yeah, I think they can be closely aligned in as much as the, the both ways of thinking regard human beings who don't are not perceived by others as contributing particularly to public life and economic f- flourishing as having less value and and I, and in the in the end when a subsection of the population get taken out get dehumanized and then taken out in history it's often because they're regarded as being economically unproductive that was what was behind the witch crazes in in large part is what's behind obviously infanticide in many parts of the world you know you, you just don't do that to people who are economically productive and able to fend for themselves and similarly for people who are either very old or very sick and so i think there are commonalities but i also think that the rationale is fundamentally different in the sense that people are it's interesting people arguing for euthanasia or abortion are often using quite christian sounding arguments for it even though the arguments against it are also christian they are talking using language of compassion or the desire to protect the rights of the mother or to make sure that people don't suffer too much which is of course not the way that the nazis were justifying what they did so i think that the rationale has been very influenced by christianity I don't think, therefore, it's a Christian thing to do, as I've said, but I think that you you have this fascinating example where, and this is a sort of Tom Hollandism, but where the culture wars are often a civil war within Christianity, only one side of which realizes they're thinking in a Christian way. And I think there is quite a lot to be said for that on a number of these particularly life issues that we've just talked about. You argue that Christendom was hoisted by its own petard, and we look at increased wealth, power, sexual permissiveness, independence, individualism. They've all contributed to decrease church attendance, decrease size of families, diminish religion overall. So let's jump into another big question. I mean, what's the response? I doubt you'd say we should go back to Christendom, even if we could. That's a big movement today or a growing movement among some Christians today. I certainly struggled to see how we could reverse the effects of industrialization. Even if we wanted the old communities and the family structures, we wouldn't put up with the medicine or the lack of transportation or the lack of of mobility, things like that. So what's the response? Well, of course, in part, I'd say too soon to say. <laughs> we're, fi- we're feeling our way, aren't we? In part, I'd say that's what I'm trying to do in, in chapters 10 and 11 right. of the book. And that's what many of us are trying to do, isn't it? I mean, you and I involved a lot in help trying to help the church think through the way to respond to 
a, basically a new moment in the history of the church. I think it helps me to think this is not the first time, it's the first time this has happened, but it's not the first time that significant economic and industrial and technological change has caused the church to completely rethink how it does evangelism, discipleship, churchmanship and so on that's obviously you'd, you'd think about that in the late 15th and early 16th centuries would be a very obvious example of how that happened uh, around the time of the reformation and just before it but i think you had to do the same in the, you'd probably say the fourth century would be another one of those times and some would say around the, the 12th century 11th and 12th and and probably others too in smaller ways um and i'm just thinking for my part of the world so the church has been there before the church has come to a crossroads and go wow significant enough changes have happened now in this moment to make me think we have to rediscover how to preach the gospel make disciples build churches and reach the nations um and so i, I don't panic that would be the first thing to say but i think we are feeling our way a bit and we've we've both you and i written a bunch of things about how we might do that in the book i try and zero in on on issues of grace freedom and truth which i think are three helpful ways of thinking how the the 18th century church responded to their moment and how we can um and talk about that at some length there so I probably won't rehash all of that but i think there's a bunch of other smaller things the church needs to do one of, one of the things we've you know I've, I've chatted about the the uh the need to do the way we do discipleship and formation in counter what well, i love the word counterkesis counter catechesis rather because you have to we have to sort of go what is, what is being taught and how does the church you have heard it was said in your generation but i say to you this is a really helpful um a helpful way of thinking and that that's true in the way we teach and preach and it's the way true the way we make disciples i think something that helps me a lot is jesus's words when he's he begin he first speaks in john's gospel and he says to the disciples following him it's like what do you seek what do you what do you want what are you after and it's a big theme in john the idea of what is it that you are seeking what's the thing in your heart that you want and i think helping think through the things that people contemporary people seek or are desiring or are looking for often are very good things and things that in many ways they've got a slightly christianized way of trying to find them but they just haven't got jesus in there and just trying to work out you actually won't find that desire satisfied without christ and here's some of the ways in which you'll find a better fulfillment of that uh, in him than you would in what you're looking for and that that's a very good evangelistic question and so i think there's Im implications for our discipleship and for our evangelism and many of them we, we sort of explore in in lots of different ways you know in things books you know even friends of ours have written chris watkins book biblical critical theory and rebecca's work uh, rebecca mclaughlin the secular creed and things like that which i think lots of people are going here's some really good ways of trying to do that so there's a lot of smart people on the case who are helping me and uh god willing we are helping others as well uh think this through but i do think we've got to acknowledge this is this is quite a significant change. I, the only other thing I'd add is that it, it's a change that is coming much more quickly on your side of the Atlantic than on yeah. mine in that a process that has taken 80 years yeah. in Britain and France and Germany and so on is taking about eight years in America, yeah. in North America. Yeah. And that that is causing it to be it's more unsettling in some ways for many people in your community than probably in mine. And so I might I probably feel a bit more breezy about it in some ways because I think I've seen this happen slower but it is obviously happening at quite a rate where you are and it's a it is a challenge and it requires the best minds we have to think this stuff through and all of us to engage with it creatively yeah you're really talking here andrew about a lot of the stuff of of what we're trying to do together at the keller center for cultural apologetics what we're trying to do with the other fellows and the ideas we're trying yeah. to think through in there ryan burge has a has a graph about the relationship between industrialization 
GDP growth and religiosity. And <clears throat> the clear the clear thesis is that they go hand in hand. The richer the country, the less religious it is, except for one country, which remains a significant outlier in the United States. And in a lot of ways, the United States was a bigger outlier before the last eight years, as you're talking about right there. But what, we see, what we're seeing with the book that Burge contributed to, The Great Dechurching, with our friends Mike Graham and Jim Davis, there's potentially a lot of room to fall for the United States still to catch up to Great Britain, France, Switzerland, different places like that. So that's part of the urgency behind the work that we're trying, trying to do. And yet when we look back, it's interesting that I don't find many Christians today lamenting the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, like sitting around saying, my goodness, if only we still had the Roman Empire, we'd be in great shape. And yet, what was that like in the day for Christians when that did happen? But what did it produce? Well, now at least we, we don't lament the fall of the Roman Empire, but we do celebrate the work of Augustine, which was produced in that milieu. Um, you mentioned this earlier, but it's interesting that the first, this very period that you're talking about was kind of a, a secular lull in some ways, but certainly in the United States, it was between the two biggest periods of evangelical religiosity in American history. Um, and so these developments that you're talking about produced Jonathan Edwards, you know, first in his responses in the First Great Awakening and Wesley and Whitfield. And then it produced in the 18th century, the very aftermath of this 19th century, um, the largest expansion of religiosity in American history. So I just find the, the thing that's so fascinating to me about history, I guess it's similar, Andrew, to why I love sports. Um, you, you don't know where it's going to go. That's what history teaches you, that only God knows in his providence what the next step is going to be. It's always surprising you. If somebody knew from history what was going to happen tomorrow, they'd be very rich and powerful people, but they don't. So they, that's what makes it interesting. Just like if somebody always knew what was going to happen in sports, then they'd be very rich and powerful, but they don't. That's what makes it, makes it really interesting here. Um, you know, we're, we're talking with Andrew Wilson here about his book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West, published by Crossway. Um, I just got a kick out of this, Andrew, imagining Voltaire being described as a Protestant pagan. I have a feeling he would <laughs> not really appreciate that. What is a Protestant pagan? So I, my argument in the book is that, or one of them, is that the, post the, way, the shape of post-Christendom today is a product of two forces working together, one of which has, been in, has always been present in human societies, which is paganism understood in a sort of fairly... Not in a pejorative way. By pagan, I don't mean, you know, stupid people or whatever who worship the, the sun and the moon. I mean, people who believe that the transcendent is located, which all, all humans feel a sense of the transcendent. But it's a question of where we locate it. Do we locate it in this world like paganism does or do you beyond the world, which is what monotheism does? And that paganism, in, in that sense, is part of the explanation for what's happening in the West today. That's clearly, it's, it's not atheism, what we, most of what we experience in the West today. I think about 15 years ago, we thought it might be, but it doesn't look, that's not the main, the main thing that's going on here. It's mostly a sort of spirituality is located within this world and self-improvement. But mingled with that, you have Protestantism, which is responsible for a lot of what 
the divisions uh, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, which lead and it's a combination of Protestantism and its and the divisions that it kind of triggers or kind of confirms and 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 amplifies, and the doubts that it weaponizes. And I'm a I'm as Protestant as anybody, right? So I'm, this, this is not like I don't like Protestant theology. This is just what historically what's something that happens to Christendom. And it's the fusion of Protestantism and paganism together that creates the kind of post-Christian landscape we're in. So when I call Voltaire or anyone else a Protestant pagan, what I mean is they are someone who, for whom A, spirituality is located or the, the, the transcendent is located within this world. And Voltaire believed in God and was quite animated that people should. But spirituality, meaning transcendent, the other and the sense of height and uh, worship, effectively, is located within the world. But at the same time, uh, a very Protestant, um, iconoclastic, tearing down the sort of the, the statues in the old. We've got a new kind of world here, and we need to doubt the religious traditions that our fathers have handed down to us and run it all through the filter of, for a Protestant, scripture and for an enlightened reason. And Voltaire, in that sense, is a very Protestant pagan figure, and so a lot of people around us. And so when I go into my coffee shop and I see simultaneously invitations to a spiritual class of something or yogic exploring of this, whatever, mingled with, in this house we believe that, you know, and a creedal statement, Black Lives Matter, love is love, kindness is everything. I think, wow, that's a very Protestant statement alongside a very pagan version of worship. And I think that's, a, to me, a pretty good two-word summary <laughs> of the kind of spiritual landscape of the West today. Yeah, you talk in the book about this worldly sense of ultimacy, happiness, and meaning, reformist zeal, moral certainty, commitment to progress, uh, a generally Christian moral framework, all those things are part of that Protestant pagan sense as well. Um, now, the great divergence, you've alluded to it before, but not by name, has to be one of the most important transformations that I don't think we can talk enough about. And I love this section that you wrote, another little bit of a longer quote here. Quote, if you put control-oriented, analytic people in an individualistic urban environment, give them a sense that the world will one day be better than it is now, and suffuse them with a deep conviction that there is an intelligence behind all things whose secrets are just waiting to be unveiled, then you would expect such a society to value novelty and discovery even if most of them remain religiously devout farmers. Give them a few centuries, and you might even expect them to produce Ben Franklin. End quote. Give us a little bit of the context here, Andrew, how you reach this conclusion amid endless academic debates over the nature of this economic explosion that began in the latter half of the 18th century. Yeah. So <laughs> summar summarize why the West suddenly got richer in 18, the 18th century. Or why you settled on this explanation yeah. amid well, every so, other one that was that was out yeah, there that you looked so at. So I, I, I basically think there are four main types of explanation. I, I read a bunch about it, and there'll be people who know far more than me, but I think there are... There are explanations of the in great enrichments, is generally the language I use, but you're right, the great divergence, um, which are based on institutions. There's people who say this is because of, you know, free trade and governments having the right amount of laws, but not too much. And, and institutional explanations of the kind of things that people, the, the, the way that the economy works internally and how governments function. There's explanations based on basically Western greed, uh, colonialism, slavery, resource extraction, killing everybody, stealing all their stuff, that kind of explanation. Uh, there's explanations which are then based on culture, which is what you're describing, the sort of sense that Western people 
over time, but partly through the influence of Christianity, I think that's a big reason, become sort of interested in novelty and discovery and new ideas and start doubting and eventually rejecting things that they've left behind. And then there's explanations based on geography, which I, in a way I think are the most foundational causes. And I think all four of those have, uh, are important to factor in. I, I think that geography is a big part of it, but I think the reason why I, the quote you, you read out, I find a really compelling part of the story is because if you just take, and one way I do this is to say, just look at all of the things that are invented, would be a good little way into this. In, and you look at, okay, so in the just the period I'm talking about, just the, the two or three years either side of 1776, and you look at which the submarine, um, the, the S trap toilets, the micrometer, the steam engine, and then eventually on into railways and all of these other, and you just think these are huge, the vaccine. And you just massively important influ influential, many, many of which we still use today. You've probably been vaccinated. You've probably got an S-trap toilet within a few yards of you right now. And you think, so why is it that almost all of those things were not just in, invented in Northwestern Europe? They're actually almost all invented by English-speaking people in either England, Wales, Scotland or North America. So what's going on? And I try and dig into that and say that actually the, the, the thread behind that in part is protestantism which produces all sorts of things like a desire for you know some of the the sort of nebulous things like a belief the world's going to be better tomorrow than it is today belief in providence of a creator god ordered laws scientific understanding and research but also you know produces literacy and people were saying god's revealed himself in a book so we better read and you put a lot of those factors together and mix them in with um you know, it's Francis Bacon and some other other key thinkers there as well, you end up with a very Protestant heavy emphasis on discovery. Now, that's just one slice of it, but I think it's a good example of how of the connection between Protestantism, discovery, novelty, curiosity, and the economic miracle that we now all live in the good and, of as we're having this conversation right and now. And take for granted. Yeah. Completely take for yeah. granted. Yeah. So it's it's a big, complicated story, but I I, I think it's... This is a, a very much a big part of it. I think alongside it, there are some very contingent material things about where the water and the wood and the coal and the minerals and all that stuff are, which we really need to talk, and I talk about a lot as well. But I think there's the fusion of those two, the ideas and the, and the material realities which create what we have today. You closed the book, Andrew, with 18th century Christian responses to 1776. Which of them do you love the most? I think... I mean, I love them all, obviously, uh, and talk about grace, freedom and truth, talk about abolitionism, religious liberty, uh, the emphasis on the personal experience of grace, particularly in hymns and personal testimonies. I think the two individuals who I find, feel the most affection for are Olaud Equiano and Johann Georg Harman. Uh, Equiano is just astonishing. Uh, you know, he's a he's a an enslaved person who gets liberated, gets converted, and then becomes an abolitionist and a, just an extraordinary man, really, his testimony of God's grace in his life. I think the person who I found the most intellectually stimulating, though, to me was Harmon, who is this genius of a philosopher who gets almost everybody who has ever written anything influential in philosophy at the time, Kant, Hegel, eventually Kierkegaard, Goethe, all, all saying, this guy is a genius. You must read what he's saying. He's brilliant. And he's just a prankster. He's got an incredible sense of humor. And he's this sort of German philosopher who is a brilliant Christian thinker who basically outflanks the Enlightenment on its own terms. And I think he and the way he 
conceptualizes Christian truth and what it has to say to the Enlightenment is probably my favorite Christian response. I also think he's the hardest to understand. And he, most people don't read. He write, writes in German. A lot of his stuff hasn't been translated yet. Um, so he's not an easy person to just jump in and go, right, where shall I start in my devotions? He's not that guy. <laughs> but such a compelling, funny, whimsical and brilliant thinker. So he's probably the person that I kind of feel like if someone read my book and then went, what's the what's the 18th century source I'd now most like to read next? I hope it would either be Ola Ode Equiano's interesting narrative or some of Harmon's work. I just think they're amazing. We've got two questions here with Andrew Wilson talking about his book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West, published by Crossway. Um, all right. Very, very important question here, Andrew. I visited Oliver Cromwell's house in Ely during my summer's visit to England, and I'll ask you the same question wow. the museum asks everyone at the end. Hero or villain? <laughs> Depends if you're Irish. <laughs> uh, I think it would be a villain to many. Um, it's quite true. I think that it is. There's a lovely quote. I don't remember who said it, but I heard it through the rest of his history podcast where they said, you can tell everything you need to know about a man's politics by which side he would have fought on at the Battle of Marston hmm. Moor, as in, would you, you know, cavaliers and roundheads. And actually, I, th I think it's a, it's a great question. So to, I have got quite Cromwellian instincts on a whole bunch of things. Um, I'm probably more sectarian. I'm probably more of a roundhead than a cavalier. Although as a kid, I always wanted to be a cavalier. They sounded cooler. <laughs> um, but I think in the end, I'm not. I'm, I, but I think it still maps through to debates in, in Britain today about Brexit, you know, leave and remain. And there's even maps you can see about where where people were pro Cromwell and where they were pro the king and mapping that on to today, who votes to leave and who votes to remain in the Brexit referendum. So it's a debate in many ways that's still being played out. I would always lean more on the Cromwellian side. But I think certainly if you had any Irish brothers or sisters listening, they would definitely say villain, I'm sure. I think as a as a Protestant, non-Catholic, well, non-Irish American, I got to the end and I, I, you know, dropped my coin or whatever in the hero side of things. And hard not to do that when you're thinking about, you know, the connection to the Puritans and America's founding, things like that. But um, I was there with um, with a man from Canada, a student there, a PhD student at Cambridge. He was just appalled. <laughs> like, how yeah. could you possibly <laughs> think that? How could yeah. you do that? I was like, yeah. well, I think we also have the differences between Canada and the United States in play here. Yes, as well. yeah, um, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, let me give you one last uh, one last question here, Andrew. Uh, Tell us about your new podcast. Tell us about your new podcast with the Gospel Coalition, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, post-Christianity, question mark. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really exciting. So Glenn Scrivener and I uh, had both written, I think, very really quite different kinds of book, uh, written at different levels with different focuses, but both really trying to do the same thing. So his book, The Air We Breathe, and my book, Remaking the World, both attempts, I think, to say to the church, here's a story of how you got here, and here's how you can learn from that to understand the world around you and to serve it better with the gospel. And so we thought the idea of doing a podcast together and exploring post-Christianity as a topic, so both telling the story about how we got here and then how the church can respond would be a really fun idea. 
but particularly because Glenn and I are pretty much neighbours. He lives 100 yards away from me. Um, we could just go down the road and record in a studio and have a live conversation, which was really, really fun. And then we got in some guests who are just brilliant. And so we got Kyle Harper, who's he's, he's not a believer, but he's a very interesting uh, historian of the ancient world, particularly, and some fascinating books recently on disease. And then particularly, we looked at his book on sex and, and the transformation of that in, through Christianity. And we've got Carl Truman, whose book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, would be familiar to some listeners. And he came and joined us on the podcast. And then Rebecca McLaughlin, who I mentioned earlier. And Carl and, and particularly Rebecca talked a lot about the more practical, like how do we reach people in post-Christianity? And so we have eight episodes. Um, and it's a, I just found them, I mean, of course I would say this, but they were really, they were just really stimulating. Glenn is just so clever and hides his, hides his learning so well. So he just asks, says such insightful things, but as if he's just thought of them without sounding like a nerd, it's really compelling. Um, and so the two of us just sort of chatting away about all the different dynamics, but he's, Glenn is also an evangelist by, I'm a pastor, he's an evangelist. We both have to do the other, the other thing as well, of course. But it was really interesting because we both spent a lot of time preaching and acting this out in local church lives. So I hope it's also got some some pastorally, evangelistically helpful application as well as, I trust, some interesting history and cultural reflection. So, and our guests are brilliant. So, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about coming out. I think it's coming out somewhere, in, you might know, actually, mid-October, I think. Yeah, um, either for that. we're recording this in um, uh, mid-September, um, but it'll either be out or it'll be out enough where you can go find it on Apple Podcasts and go ahead and subscribe. I'm just going to say this is not very complicated. If you're watching on YouTube or you're listening on your favorite podcast uh, app and you like this conversation or you listen to anything that I do in Gospel Bound, I guarantee you're going to love this podcast. It's not not a complicated (laughs) ask there. Um, These themes that we're talking about here come up frequently, but a lot of the things that we're working on um, uh, that we're working through with different authors on Gospel Bound come through in there. And um, it's just a, a very high priority for the Gospel Coalition, for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, this sense in which as they, as they talk about the ambiguity of post-Christianity, that in some ways we remain these Protestant pagans, these, the, you know, our culture of, of, of being very obviously and exclusively Christian in ways that very few people recognize as they reject the confession of the faith in favor of a more pagan this worldly application. Um, so you'll see them work through those tensions. I think you'll find it uh, fascinating, just like Andrew is is saying here. So go subscribe to Post Christianity question mark from Glenn Scrivener and Andrew Wilson. Pick up the book Remaking the World: How 1776 Created the Post Christian West. And Andrew, I want to close with with this quote. It's a good one from you. Um, comes from the comes from your conclusion. You write this. Fidelity scores higher than novelty. Loss of influence is not a cause for panic. The doctrines, experiences, and practices that the church needs today are much the same as the ones she needed in the 18th century and the 10th and the 2nd. We are responsible for obedience, not outcomes. Faithfulness, not fruit. If we do not see the results we used to by praying, worshiping, reading scripture, serving the poor, preaching the gospel, sharing the sacraments, and loving one another, we carry on with those things regardless and walk by faith, not by sight. Genuine revival, when it comes, is at God's initiative rather than ours. In the meantime, we wait, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. 
and resolving not to be anxious about tomorrow, for we have no idea what tomorrow will bring. Andrew Wilson, thanks for joining me on Gospel Now. Thank you so much for having me, Colin. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.